Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Joining me today is astrologer Chani Nicholas, and we're going to be talking about the difference between the sun, moon, and rising signs. Uh, so hey, Chani, welcome to the episode or to the show. Hey, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. I don't yeah, want to jinx I'm it, but this has been a lot of years in the making. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think it's the perfect timing, though. It's the stars have finally aligned. Uh, we've been thinking about doing an episode like this, but I think this is the perfect time, partially because for me, I'm very excited because you finally just released the Android version of your famous astrology app, right? Yes, yes. We just launched it on the Venus Kazemi. Nice. Yes. So um, it has been a couple of years in the making. We have put all of our tech team's efforts towards building a whole new app, and we're just so excited to finally have it out the door. Fantastic. All right. Well, we'll talk about that more um, later. So why don't we set up the premise for this episode, mm -hmm. which is you know, in the 1960s, um, astrology became really popular with like the bo baby boomers and like the hippie generation. And after that point, everybody knew what their sun sign is, which is like the sign of the zodiac that your sun is in at birth. Um, but in the past, I want to say five, five years or so, it seems like maybe almost 10 years um, through the rise of astrology apps like your app, as well as through websites like astro.com, all of a sudden everybody knows um, more than just their sun sign. And everybody tends to know their big three, which is their sun, moon, and rising signs. Or in some instance, they know that they have an entire birth chart and that those three placements are the most important. So I thought we would talk about what the difference is between them and um, things like that today. Have you been just like as shocked as I've been that everybody, more people know their sun, moon, and rising than just their sun sign these days? I mean, I think the, since, since about 2016, I think we, we had like a big push in 2016 because of all of the chaos in the world, I think. And but when I say we, I mean like astrology, the astrology right. we, um, and from that point to this, and especially since the launch of TikTok, I have been floored by the fluency in our tradition and in, in the astrological system that the general population now has. So we see this, you mentioned the sixties and the baby boomers, but we can go back obviously earlier to the printing press and to like the first, you know, widely spread horoscopes that started to become something that was in the papers and then eventually in magazines. And so like, that's a technology. And then with the technology of smartphones and then technologies around social media, like it's just been one kind of boom after another, like Facebook was one kind of era. And then Instagram was an, and Twitter, of course, a whole other era, right. Instagram, and then TikTok just like, really, like I was shocked at how the things that were going viral or getting a lot of ears and eyes on it were so intricate. And I was like, wow, people really want to know like this level of astrology. So right. it feels like with every advancement, people are like, okay, I get it. Give me more. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, that there's so many things like Saturn returns are like pretty well known these days, obviously Mercury retrograde. Um, this summer, we've seen so much talk about Venus retrograde and so many yeah. connecting it with like all the celebrity breakups or, or other <laughs> relationship things going on. Yeah. I mean, it's been a big summer for, for artists. It's been a big summer for unions. It's mm -hmm. been a big summer for concerts and tours and especially women in the arts, I think has been like one of the major leading things. I think probably like you, I was expecting a lot more stuff about LGBTQIA rights. Um, and right. I, you know, it's not over yet, so we'll see, but 
yeah, it's been, it's been big. I mean, just look at Taylor Swift and Beyonce and like revenue and the, you know, what women and artists are doing. And Fran Drescher being the head of, you know, that conversation, it's just been wild to watch it all unfold. Yeah. And the, and the biggest, um, opening biggest uh, release for a Barbie. Woman, yeah for a woman director in like history has been amazing on the Venus retrograde itself yeah about Barbie like right. could it be more Venusian it's been yeah and I I do know an astrologer from their marketing team actually did reach out to me because I was like they've got to have astrologers on their marketing team and she was like yes <laughs> whoa that's so that's big okay yeah and it's not like one person on the marketing team could make that release happen on that day, but it was just this wild coincidence. And so, you know, there's, I don't know how you feel about this, Chris, but I always feel like in this day of social media, in this day of like mass information, highways everywhere, Mm -hmm. we describe the astrology and then are we also making it right? or are we like, is it a, like now in this moment where like I launched, you know, the original version of the app on the great conjunction. And then we launched the Android version of the app on the Venus Cassini. So I'm, we're using as a company, always astrology to do things. And so we're also kind of creating it in a way. And so I see that a lot and it's, it's always this interesting kind of thing I'm sitting in is like, what happens just organically and how do we actually use, you know, your brilliant election charts to like do things and work with the times. Yeah, that's a really good point. And also in for both of us in creating this astrology content and talking about what the weather is on a regular basis, you never know who's listening. And sometimes you find out yeah. in retrospect that people were listening that you didn't realize. And sometimes that was influencing things in interesting ways. Definitely. A lot of people are listening in a lot of different ways, I think. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So since this is your first time, we've done a forecast together, I think a couple of years ago, but since this is your first time doing a major episode, I just wanted to introduce you a little bit to my audience and talk a little bit about your background. Um, how long have you been studying astrology? I started studying astrology when I was 12 years old on my Jupiter return. Um, nice. I'm many, 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 many years older now. So like 30 plus years, like my original introduction to it to now. And then like, you know, there's been moments of more serious study through my adult life. And then of course, just like a full prostration devotion to astrology over the last 12, 13 years. Mm -hmm. Okay. Brilliant. And, um, I know you studied with Demetra, you, you mentioned her in your work that has a big influence on you. Demetra George, Demetra George, Demetra George, Demetra George. Yes. Um, always she is, uh, you know, one of the people, the main person, I think that helped me to synthesize everything. She sat with me in individual lessons painstakingly for years until she fired me, um, and fired, I think all of us that studied with her like that. So, you know, like I missed the first big, um, the Kepler college days. Like I, I kind of heard about it, but I, I was like, I don't know if I should like devote that much to Australia. You know, I was like really kind of hemming and hawing and I missed that whole boat. So when I came around, it was like individual classes like that when I really wanted to study traditional astrology. Um, and then, you know, like a lot of the, the supplemental education that I received was from your podcast was like listening to you and Austin and Kelly And it was like everything I was starting to read about and then eventually learning with Demetra and then listening to your podcast, just like 
gave me this like full education and download. So this podcast has always been a huge part of my learning. And also just like, you know, I'm not always talking to you all personally, but like being in that kind of conversation in the ethers about what everything is and how it works. So I'm deeply grateful for your work. Oh, brilliant. And, and you've been writing, um, that's amazing. And you've been writing also, um, horoscopes. You started writing astrology stuff and really leaning into, um, being a professional astrology in the early 2010s and building yeah. up just, um, I was reflecting with Kira Tabor in an episode. She was just out here in Denver a few days ago, and we were reflecting on how important it actually is to write things like like horoscopes or forecasts or things like that, and and what that does to you, both as an astrologer as well as a writer. That's really mm -hmm. necessary and like a helpful building block for developing some of your tools doing delineations. Yeah, and I think as Austin says, like you got to be a sucker for the grind kind of thing because it is relentless. I call it the bartending right. of astrology. It's like, it's a never ending. Somebody always needs another drink. There's always another week to talk about. There's always another thing. Nothing stays. And it's just like, kind of, you know, like a meditation, like you write it, you let it go. It's over in seven days. If you're writing weeklies or, you know, you, you do these like huge, you know, readings for the year. I do them also in the app and it's just like, massive project and you like do it for each sign and then it lasts a year and then you got to do it right. again. And it's just like, okay, it's kind of like this relentless thing that you just give into and let it kind of work you. But I think it, it's the thing that really does keep you sharp because you're doing all this work for it. You're either writing about it, talking about it or both, and then you're watching it play out. And so you're you're writing a thesis or speaking it out and then you're watching to see if it actually holds or what part of it actually works. And then you learn for the next time you do it. So yeah, it's an amazing teacher in and of itself. Yeah. There's something really important about that in the process of like speaking and thinking, saying what you think it will be based on the symbolism, but then observing it and like that empirical element of then, okay. And then seeing each month or year or day or what have you, like what actually happens and getting that feedback and, and learning more each time. Yeah. Um, so, but in getting all that experience writing that eventually seems like it culminated in your book, um, which came out in 2010, which is titled, you were born for this or sorry. Yeah. 2020. Uh, thank you for the disastrous year. Yeah. Well, you got it in like just before the pandemic fully hit, it came out like January 7th. Yeah, it was like in those eclipses, in those right. conjunctions, it was like Saturn, Pluto. And everywhere I went, people were like, tell us about 2020, the year, like right. what should we expect? And and I got to a point on the book tour, I was like, I'm not going to talk about it because it's not good and I don't want to scare everybody. And I don't know how it's going to roll out. And at that point in January, I think a lot of us were thinking about, you know, uh, global politics and, you know, possible wars that might break out, but um, LOL. Yeah. Well, you got to do a little bit of a book tour first. And I remember yes. it was like one of the last major things I remember. I was like going out to a Barnes and Noble and buying your book, like the day it came out <laughs> um, in January. So it's like one of my distinct memories of like, you know, pre, you know, pandemic life um, yeah. doing Yay. that. I'm, I'm glad you got to get like a little bit of book promo in before yeah. things, right? Yeah. Yeah. I actually finished my book tour before because I, I just did a small one. So I was happy nice. with that. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Was, yeah. I remember right. doing one at CIIS and Rick Tarnas was in the audience. And that was one of the times I was like, I don't want to talk about the astrology of 2020. And he came up to me after and he was like, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, as the Saturn Pluto conjunction is like yeah. happening, like as you're speaking, like over 
probably like Rick's shoulder or something at that moment. <laughs> exactly. um, well, the book, I wanted to mention the book because the book is amazing. And it's like one of my top recommended astrology books for new astrologers. And it's like on my lists of that book that everybody has to read as like one of their first books because it blends modern and traditional astrology just so well, but is also approachable. And you can see the years of work you put into it in terms of like writing and like learning how to translate astrology content to normal people um, really comes out in the book so that it becomes that that perfect like intro to astrology book it seems like wow thank you chris that means a lot it's you know i don't know how you your book took a decade and some i think but writing a book is just like like the first one is just like a whole like i was just like so afraid <laughs> I'm going to write this. And you kind of go, I kind of like went into a place of like, I don't know. And, you know, write it all. And then you edit it and then you get out in the world and you don't want to think about it ever again. Demetra once said to me like, yes, as soon as I'm finished writing a book, I think, well, I would like to rewrite this now. <laughs> That's like right. how yeah. I feel about it. That is the constant, um, yeah, state of being a writer or content creator is never being yeah. fully happy, like with what you, you know, always knowing what could have been different or whatever, yeah. but Nonetheless, amazing book. And that actually gives a nice segue into our topic, which is the book does a really good job of helping to introduce people to the fact that they're, you're more than just your sun sign and that there's a lot more beyond astrology than just sun signs, while at the same time helping to contextualize and put emphasis on um, what you call like the three key placements in the chart, which is the sun, the moon, and the rising signs. Um, and, and what do you call those or, or what's your specific phrase? Um, in the book, the oh, well, just three that you keys call to the chart. Yeah, the three keys to the chart. I just want to yeah. make sure I got the exact phrase yeah. correct because I thought that was a really good phrase because they really are so important that they do become like the three keys, especially early in one studies for unlocking this deeper understanding of astrology and the birth chart in general. Yeah, and I think what I wanted to do was just help locate people's focus. Like, if we stay focused, if we never lose focus of these things then we're always going to come up with something that feels like intelligent and integrated and useful. Mm -hmm. And I think even just through studying those three things, and when people hear like those signs, they're going to think just about the quality of the signs. But of course, we're talking about so much more. But if you're, if you are really going in depth with those three places, kind of plus one, plus the ruler of the ascendant, and how everything else in the chart is or is not in connection with those things, you've got such a meaty kind of thesis of that moment or that person's life or the meaning of that astrology chart. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, and in terms of keywords, some of the keywords you gave to the three, just to give people like a very quick synopsis, and then we'll get into more of a deep dive is that you said the sun is your life's purpose and it's where and how you shine. The moon is your physical and emotional needs and how we live out our purpose in the physical realm. And then the ascendant and its ruler is your motivation for living and direction your life is steered in. Um, I know it's been like three years since the book came out. Is that still more or less like some of your core keywords or are there other like sort of in the synopsis version that you would add or modify to that at this point? Yeah, I think, you know, what's the like literal translation, the ascendant or the horoscope, the hour marker is like, that's, that's like your yes to life. Like that's when you said yes. And you were like, okay, I'm here, I'm born. And that's why the ascendant is so incredibly potent and powerful to understand again, not just by quality of sign, but like 
what it's doing in the chart. What's there? Is anybody talking to it? What's happening with the ascendant? Cause it's the moment of birth and we just, um, welcomed our first child. And so Whoa. being in, thank you. And having that experience g- gives me a whole other relationship with the ascendant. Let's just say that. Okay. Yeah. And that moment yeah. of birth. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's huge because, so that brings us to a really important thing, which is that the ascendant is, um, there's a whole timing component with all of this where the sun uh, will spend an entire month in each sign of the zodiac. The moon will spend two and a half days in each sign of the zodiac, two or three days in each sign of the zodiac. And then the ascendant will um, change every hour or sometimes every two hours. So maybe that's our first like foundational piece for understanding the difference between them is that um, each of them takes moves through the signs of the zodiac at different rates. And therefore, there's almost different different levels of personalization where it's like everybody that month has the same sun sign. Everybody within that two or three day period has the same moon sign but only people born within the the same hour or couple of hours has the same rising sign as you, which immediately sets it up so that the rising sign is the most sort of personal point in the chart or is much more personal than the other two. Yeah, born at the same time in the same location. Right. Because of also time zones, right? So it's not like at that time all over the world or what have you. So it's, it's like very specific to time and place. And that is the the moment that you're, that you're, you're born. So it is the, the inception or the beginning of your life. And so that is marked. And then from there, of course, it sets up the entire chart. And I think that's where I usually lose people. That's such a great point though, because that brings us to, since I guess resetting, since we're talking to like beginners, presumably primarily with this episode, or at least not taking anything for granted, that's good to know that that's the reason why you know, people have to go ask like their mom, like what their birth time is, or have to go ask their birth certificate or people, there's almost like this meme going around of like, you know, um, people texting their mom to ask like, what time was I born or something like that. And um, the reason that you have to do that is because it's the ascendant, especially that is keyed into the exact time you were born as well as the exact location. So that's why it's good to try to figure out the exact time and city you were born in as close as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what a pain in the ass as a system, like what a difficult system. So for astrology to have survived for thousands of years and for it to be conceived at a time where they didn't have clocks like we do now, and they didn't have like exact like minutes that they had to figure out where the sun was and what that meant for, in terms of that day that like, it's a really challenging, difficult, like, uh, you know, like it's a high cost of entry, I think in a, in a lot of ways. And it's not just, it's not fair. Like, it's not like if you have a, if you have a face, you can do like a face reading, or if you have a palm, you can do a palm reading. Or if I throw some stones on the ground and I can give you a reading, it's like this whole other thing. It's like, you got to jump through a lot of hoops and not everybody knows their birth time for a million different reasons. So it's also, you know, the ascendant is a, is a, it can be a challenging <laughs> subject to talk about because of all those reasons. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like it's there's a high barrier to entry to this form of divination or to whatever extent astrology is a form of divination, like other ones like tarot or yeah. um I Ching or other things like that. Um, 
astrology has this like other empirical component where it's like that happened you know no matter what whether anybody was paying attention to it or whether it was recorded or anything else that you were born at a specific moment in time at a specific place and that the alignment of the planets at that moment had something to say about the quality of your life and your future but um yeah it's like some people have that recorded and other people don't necessarily mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you can still look at a chart without that and understand how the planets are talking to each other you're just not as specific you don't know exactly what areas of life everything is located in or what it's talking about yeah so it's just more the there's a more personalized component if you have the birth time compared to if you just have the day or, or what have you yeah. um so that's really important okay so that we're setting up the difference then and that the birth time is important um that that sets up the entire birth chart itself with all of the house placements once you know your rising sign and you know what houses each of the planets are placed in and you'll see that there's at least what 10 different planets nine or 10 different planets in your chart so all of a sudden you go from maybe just knowing your sun sign to seeing that there's there's this whole complicated thing that's going on with the chart and you sort of have to figure out where to start and it seems like the starting place for most astrologers for basically the past 2000 years is looking at the three most astronomically significant things in the chart which is your sun your moon and your rising sign right and so the other important thing to know to remember especially as a beginner when you're thinking about the ascendant it then especially in our system of thinking of things it then becomes what we call your first house and the first house is the only house in the whole chart there's 12 of them that is specifically and only you and so from this place, it becomes the you, the ascendant, the rising sign gives you the you of the chart, the you of your, you know, whole system. And then you see how everything else in the sky or in your chart is talking or not, you know, talking is witnessing or not witnessing you is in relationship with you or is like in some kind of weird hidden place. And so you get to see from the ascendant, what you have access to and what might be, what might be a little bit more challenging for you to get to who's helping you and who might be an adversary. And I usually lose people at this place because people don't understand what houses are. And so the first house is you. And then every other house in the chart is every other. And I mean, everything under the sun aspect of life, you can find it in one of the other 11, 11 houses, but that first house is is all you. So whatever is there, isn't there, is talking to that house, is not talking to that house, is all about how your life and the kind of game or trajectory or map of your life is set up. Right. I love that. That's perfect. Um, let me throw, I'll, I'll throw a chart up. So this is just the chart for like roughly when we began. And it just shows over on the left, the ascendant is in on the left side of the chart in late Libra and that the sign of Libra was rising up over the eastern horizon, uh, which is where the sun rises each day. And just imagine a certain part of the sky um, rising up over the horizon at the moment that you were born. And that's basically what your um, what your rising sign is astronomically, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's All the right. moment. It's the place where heaven and earth meet on the Eastern horizon where everything comes up. So it's a marker of life because things are ascending and coming up. It's where the sun is thought to be reborn every you know morning, if you're going by like Egyptian mythology, but just even the symbolic nature of sunrise feels like an awakening and a new day. And so 
anything at that point where heaven and earth meet on the Eastern horizon has that quality of like ascension and like possibility. And it, you can think of it like a metaphorical sunrise point, no matter where the sun is, but it's that moment of like, okay, yes, this is the new thing that's coming up and is announcing itself as here. Yeah, that's a great metaphor. So it's just like the sun rises and is reborn every day and emerges from under the earth into the sky where you can see it at sunrise. All of the other stars and planets similarly will rise up over the eastern horizon at some point in the day and are similarly like reborn. And you can see them visibly just in the same way that at that moment that you were born, there was a rising sign, the ascendant was at a specific point, and the sky was emerging out into view at a specific point. And similarly, you sort of emerged into the world at that specific point in time as well. So you having a baby recently, you had like a much more like visceral experience of that recently or got to, to understand like a new uh, level of understanding of that. Yes. And let me tell you, we were so uh, egregiously full of ourselves that we were like, oh, for sure, our baby is going to have this rising sign or this rising sign. For sure, nice. we're going to have them at this time of night or this time of night. And of course, they came right in between. And it was such a, it was, it tripped us, it tripped me out to such a great degree because it means that my child has the ruler of their ascendant in a dark house in a place. And I was like, you know, it, so the, even people that study this forever can become fearful of the thing. And that's, you know, mm. one of the things I start the book out with is like, don't be afraid of this. It's, it's, yeah. it's always going to sound worse. If you're looking at a judgment of your life, like you only want things to be, there's a part of our brain that only wants things to be good. And we forget the nuances of what is judged good and bad and what is powerful and not, and, and the other factors of being a human and that it's really complex, but yes, I was like handed my ass in the delivery room when, <laughs> when the rising sign was like, no, not that one. And you could just, you know, you're like you, you, as a human, you get in this place of thinking you can, well, at least I do think I can control things. And then right. I just felt like, you know, our child was like, <laughs> let this be a lesson. First of many, <laughs> like, this is not about you. This is about me and what my life is about. And so it was wild. It was, it was wild and a horror, like just a, a total trauma. I don't think um, people really understand uh, until it happens, what it means to birth another human. Mm. Um, and so I found this gorgeous quote uh, is it, was it from Rhetorius about the nature of the first house and the nature of the ascendant as it relates to childbirth. So right. this is from Rhetorius, the Egyptian, uh, Holden, James Holden. So this is how the, the chapter opens up. The first house is called the house of life. And so you got it. This is ancient. So it does. It's not poetic and it's not written in the style that we would always write it, but the first house is called the house of life. And on account of this fact, it is so-called because after the rising of the house of the bad daemon, this very sign rises. And after the passing of the climacteric, it is examined closely and the one giving birth and the newborn. And because they have both gone from dangers and shadows into the light and life. 
So it's a little bit of a complex notion, but the house above the first house, the first house of your birth and the you and the yes of life is the 12th house, which is a house that's dangerous and challenging. So I thought it was so poetic and so like on point because childbirth itself, I think for the most part is a harrowing, traumatic life and death kind of moment and watching one human try to bring another human into the world really brings you into that space of like, you, you understand this is like, does not seem like an easy way for us to propagate. Like this, this is like the hardest thing ever. And so, um, I thought it was beautiful in terms of how the houses are laid out, but I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead of, of us. No, but- that's brilliant. I'm glad you brought up that quote. Cause that's always one of the most striking. I remember Demetra at Kepler, she, there was a few years where she taught ancient Greek to like a group of astrologers. And I remember my friend, Laura Machete sent me a translation of that passage that they had done mm-hmm. um, that I thought was really good. And it's, I don't know how like literal it is because Holden tends to translate a little bit more literally, but let me, let me just read their translation really quick. Cause I always thought it was really um, striking. So Again, this is like a rough translation, but she said, so this is for the 12th house, which is the mm-hmm. sign that rises in the hour or two prior to the person being born. So she you're says, thinking about actually laboring as that sign is like the, what's happening before the baby comes, what is what's happening before the life emerges. And so that really challenging time of like, who's going to make it? Are they both going to make it? What's going to happen? Yeah. So he says, Rotoria says, the 12th place is called bad diamond and pre-ascension and between worlds. It signifies things concerning enemies and slaves and four-footed creatures and everything that comes about before the hour that is favorable for giving birth and to the mother and the child who will be born since this sign has risen before the separation of the infant. The place is called that of Kronos insofar as the fetus is being separated through the pouring out of the waters and because the birthing mother stands between life and death when she is being observed by Kronos and Aries through the opposition. Mm. Um, yeah, so just that that notion that like the mother and the baby, that they're they're between sort of life and death or you're at this really crucial in-between stage and that's literally what the 12th house is. It's that hour or two prior to the exact moment of birth where everything is sort of up in the air and there's this like tension and sort of like difficulty. Yeah. It brings a whole new understanding to the 12th house. So if you have something in the 12th house, that's especially something that's like really significant, like your sun or moon or the planet that rules your ascendant, then we know that there's something important in that very challenging kind of part of life that you might be drawn to or work with or know something of those liminal spaces of not knowing quite if something is going to make it or somewhat, you know, like in those, in those kind of danger zones that this is a person that is able to do something in there, or of course might succumb to those, you know, harder kind of aspects of life. Again, a little off topic, but we're okay. there. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're getting there. No, this is good because um, this is bringing up a lot of really important stuff in terms of the moment of birth and why that's so crucial and yeah. why then the the rising sign in the first house is so personal to you because that represents um, where the sky 
was emerging from the earth at that moment, just like you emerged from from your mother the body at that of the at that person moment. who birthed you. Yeah. 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 That's also a beautiful way to see it. That part of the sky is the signification, is the mark of you emerging from that person who brought you here. Yeah, exactly. Um, so um that I'm trying to think if that brings up any other keywords. I mean, it brings up in ancient astrology that they had keywords of both the body as well as the sense of self is assigned to like the first house mm -hmm. um and uh, other things having to do with like personal characteristics and appearance and things like that um maybe i can show a diagram so this is my this is my usual diagram for the significations of the, the 12 houses mm -hmm. um different astrologers have different sort of like emphasis or like specific wording for specific houses so if you have any different any that are different let me know mm -hmm. um usually for the first house and the rising sign i give significations like self um body character and appearance Mm -hmm. um, what are some of your other significations or what other things come to mind for you for the first house? Yeah. So as per Demetra George's teaching, it's like the, whatever, this is our motivation. Like this is the, when we, when we come into the world and we say yes to a life, then, then we could assume that there's a kind of motivating factor for that. So that's more about the sign that is on that, but those are, those are the key words that I use. Like if you want to talk about who you are like yes the sun we can focus on that and that's an easy place to go to but because the ascendant is so incredibly personal and a, such a sensitive point you know in time and space this is really what we want to start with like when, whenever I read a chart I begin there and then I, I I let that lead me through a lot of different things before I even get to the sun Hmm. Okay. That's really important to know. And that, yeah, so that's something that sets apart like a, like a professional astrologer. Most of the time is they'll really start by setting up the ascendant and the rising sign and then the rest of the houses, whatever house system they're using. Mm -hmm. um, and that becomes their, oftentimes their starting point or their focal point, especially mm -hmm. because of like, you're referring to one of the ancient names for the first house, like in Rhetorius, who we were just reading as he calls the first house, the helm, or like mm -hmm. the steering wheel of the ship using this metaphor that the entire chart is sort of like a ship or the ship of the native's life and that the first house and the planet associated with it sets up um, the the direction of a person's life in some sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, all right. So let's see. One of the things you said at the beginning and before I forget it and get away from it, I really liked as you mentioned like really early on in the process as you give people some advice that i thought was actually really important where you had this um this section about committing to the process um and you kind of mentioned it briefly earlier but it's worth maybe drilling in on here which is that you give people like three guidelines as they're learning astrology and the first is you say one um i promise to never give my current understanding of my chart too much power um, and then two, you said, I promise to never underestimate the wisdom that is woven into my chart. And three, I promise to always leave room for learning, unlearning, and relearning. Um, and I thought that was such an important piece that I was glad to, you, you included it in the book. Um, why, did, why do you feel like those pieces are like important to state at the outset? 
you know, before I wrote the book and one of the reasons why I did write the book is I had spent so many years teaching people astrology online. And so what I, what happens when you begin teaching something is you also start to understand the problems with it or how it's received or thought of. And because we're talking about the nature of your life and we're talking about something to do with perhaps your fate, so much fear is evoked in us when we start to look. And so I just wanted to start the process with the reminder that your mind is going to think that it knows everything before the wisdom has actually been able to even integrate and then to remain humble enough to know that you're always going to be learning, that there's always going to be a new way of understanding your life as it pertains to your astrology chart or your astrology chart as it pertains to your life and any kind of limited notion of who you are and what you're capable of or what a sign or omen or signal astrologically means for you, it needs to be questioned and scrutinized. And I think we need to continually do that. Like me in the delivery room with my child, like who am I to think that I know what her chart means that what that, that means for the life of this new human, like leave my judgment out of it. It's, it's up to that little human that just came in to show me what that means. Yeah, for sure. And, and, it, and it touches on a point that I think all astrologers know eventually once you've been studying it for long enough or practicing astrology, it becomes like an almost intuitive, but just the notion that like every thing you think about a chart based on a placement is sort of like provisional. And it's like, you have an idea of what this means or what this should mean based on the theory of astrology or based on other empirical observations in the past, but you always have to leave open a certain amount of room for how things might manifest in a way that's different. Or when we're talking about challenging placements in a way that's like more productive or more positive than you might initially anticipate in some way so that people yes. shouldn't get hooked on negative interpretations of placements and think it, it has to be that or it has to be the worst case scenario where oftentimes there's like a whole different range of of how things can manifest and i think especially for those of us that are that are reading these books <laughs> that are really old because they're not very nuanced. Like they're not very right. sensitive to your feelings. Like right. they're going to be like, this is horrible. People, robbers are going to come. You're going to be bit by a scorpion. You're going to die at an early age. Your parents will be, you know, it's like, it, it's very intense and it's not very helpful in terms of being like, well, how would that translate to modern day? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. What does that mean actually for me? I'm probably yeah. not going to be hunted by a pack of dogs uh, anytime soon, hopefully, but um, you know, yeah, I mean, sometimes the modern translation is something funny, like you, you know, you go on Twitter and you get hounded by a pack of um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> not great, not great people, and it sort of fits the symbolism, yeah, but exactly. Yeah, but you're not um, literally torn to shred. Anyways, yeah, maybe feels like maybe that metaphorically, way, but yeah. metaphorically, <laughs> yeah, um, so, okay, so I think that's really important, especially when talking about like difficult placements and because that's just something professional astrologers take for granted, but something that maybe we can internalize negative interpretations of our chart placements that we don't yeah. need to necessarily hold on to as tightly as we might think as at first. Yeah. And something that, that is really painful and symbolizes or crystallizes your understanding of your own trauma in your chart 
it's so important to remember that as we age and as we heal and as we spend time with the things that are difficult, the nature of our relationship to it also changes. Mm -hmm. And the big bad monsters of our childhood do not stay the same size when we focus on right-sizing them. And so with that, the chart changes and the, the interpretation of that really difficult part in our chart that just like, you know, scares us or like we feel like we, it dogs us that can be like liberated from that monster, like, you know, disfigured kind of understanding into something that feels like it has been repurposed for the best possible use. Right. I love that. So there, there's some kind of delicate balance between, because on the one hand, sometimes looking at your chart and seeing the difficult placements early on, and then resonating with that and understanding yeah, like, helps. oh yeah, that that's actually like can be therapeutic yeah. and somehow finding a balance between that versus overly focusing or, or opting, adopting like a fatalistic attitude about some placement that it can't manifest in different ways or can't get better in some ways that you, you want to find some sort of middle ground. Yeah. It's, I feel like it's always a prism. Hmm. Each planet is a prism. Each what we call aspect connection between the planets is a prism. Yes. When you look at it like this way, it's terrifying. And then this way you're like, oh, that's different. That, and, and so you can keep, it's like a kaleidoscope. Like I'm still looking through the same kaleidoscope, but it does give me different iterations and different versions of mm -hmm. that configuration, even though the qualities of it remain. That makes sense. Um, all right, so let's zoom out. We've talked a lot about the ascendant and some of the astronomical properties at this point. Um, how, where does the sun and the moon fit into all of this? And like, how are the, even if they're not the most personal points in the chart, they're still pretty personal and pretty important, especially when it comes to our personality and characteristics, right? Yeah. So I just want to say though, like when we see the ascendant, we get the sign of the ascendant and we want to know like what the qualities of that sign are. Is it a, what, what, what's the speed of that sign? What's the nature of that sign? What is that sign going to be oriented towards and then we want to look to see if there's any other planets in the first house that are impacting the ways in which that sign is expressed. And then I would go to the planet that rules that sign and, and see where that is going. That's just like my process. But okay. then if, so what I want to do after that, if I'm going to look at, if I'm going to go to the sun or the moon, and uh, I want to see, well, the sun is the, the, the life force, right? If you think about the sun in the solar system, the sun's impact on the earth, nothing would grow without it. It is an obvious generator of life and is, you know, if we didn't have the sun, we wouldn't be here. It would be very different. It would be very hard. And so that is true in the chart. And Demetra talks a lot about it being associated with the divine mind or like a divine kind of spark. So something that's, that is about divinity. It is about our spirit. That is about the, the spark of, of life that moves through us. Maybe it's not us, but it's that thing that all animated, all sentient beings have, they have a spark of life and we could maybe even see the sun as part of that. So it's like this big part of our purpose. And then the moon is that the physical embodiment of it. So I see the first house as the body and also the moon as body, as the conception of life, of the body houses our emotional patterns. It, it, 
it takes stock of everything that ever happens to me. My body has a response to it. So every, every it's recorded history. My body is the history of this incarnation of, of my soul. And so I can do when I do somatic work, I'm working with the moon. If I want to think about it, how it translates astrologically. And because it's about conception, it's about like the person that birthed you and the person that birthed them. And there's like this kind of understanding of almost genealogy through it. So it's that feeling of a lineage of people that brought you here and how you got here. And all of that is recorded. And without the body, my spirit, my soul can't live out its purpose. So the, what we call luminaries are of a different category than the rest of the planets, because they are such bright lights. Of course, the moon waxes and wanes, and that's all part of its, of its myth and its understanding and its, and its signature, but, and the sun does in a sense too, it has its own kind of cycles. But if we think about human history before we even had this system of, of what we would call astrology, we learned everything and had to map out most things in accordance with the journey of the sun through the solar kind of year. And also the, the journey of the moon through the, through the lunar cycle taught us so much about time and space and the seasons and through those two bodies through, through the sun and the moon and our witnessing of them, our understanding of them grows out. I think most of our religious and spiritual rituals, understandings and meaning. And I think so much can be traced back to those two luminaries. And so they stand out in what some people say is like the king and queen or like the two sovereigns in the chart and everything kind of gets organized underneath them. They become the leaders of two, what we call sex in the chart. So two teams, if you will, and there's other planets that get organized under them. And so, so much comes from uh, these two bodies. And so we want to always prioritize them. Um, and of course they've been popularized for good reason, uh, but we just don't want to ever leave the ascendant out. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. I'm glad you used the term luminaries because that's so, so important that the sun and moon are referred to as the two luminaries because they're the two bodies in our solar system that emit light and they're the two brightest celestial bodies in the sky especially the sun during the day and the moon at night especially if it's let's say it's like a full moon you know the sun is beneath the horizon it's nighttime like the moon is shining and is um you know sometimes if we're out like let's say we're walking in a dark forest there's a difference between like if the moon is full and it's shining light down so that you can actually see things in the dark versus if the moon's like not above the horizon and it's much harder to see. Um, and it kind of brings up a really important core point for astrologers when talking about the luminaries, which is just what is light and understanding the the what what light provides to us and like what mm -hmm. it does and how that can be interpreted symbolically. Um, I was watching some podcast recently with a physicist and he was presented with this question of like, what is light? And it was funny actually seeing him talk about how um, like struggling to, to come up with an actual like definition and, and what a, a mysterious concept, even the concept of light is to a certain extent. Um, and I was really struck by that that it's something that we all take for granted, like the difference between light and darkness, but what um, what a core 
principle that is for all of us, but also what a somewhat mysterious thing it is. Just the mm -hmm. notion of like, you know, what is light and where does it come from? And just more importantly, something that we take for granted that's um, ingrained in us is such a core thing that's a requirement for life in some ways. Right, right. Yeah, so the sun is our primary sort of provider of light uh, and darkness, and it creates that difference between day and between night. And astrologically, um, we often look to that as the primary source for some of the things that we associate with light, um, including like the intellect or including things like the mind or, or things like that, the sort of core creative force that everything emanates from in, in the universe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, you know, that the concept of light or brilliance or the kind of like emanations that come from then the other planets is also associated with their meaning. So as you start to look at the, what the other planets are like and how they've been kind of situated or ranked in a way, they also have a lot to do with light because the two planets that are said to be the benefics, the good planets are also the brightest of the planets, right? So it translates. And so you might be like, well, that's, um, that is a kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? It is a, um, like a core yeah. concept or like a it's foundational a core concept, principle, but it also could feel like a, an unfair judgment in a sense. But if we relate light to literal life and needing kind of the sun's rays and warmth and heat, um, then you can understand where these concepts come from a time where life was so precarious and people died at probably just wildly exceptional rates, didn't live that long. So anything that was life bringing or that reflected the qualities of life bringing was deemed as, as good, as powerful as something that you want well situated. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And you use the term like brilliance and another term you use a lot is like shine that the sun just wants to shine. And that in a birth chart, the placement of the sun describes where and how we shine in different ways, which yeah. I thought was really important. Yeah. The, the, yeah. There's this, there's this way in which when you're, I think at least my understanding of it is that when you're in a realm of life that resonates well with you, you feel that way in which you uniquely shine and it's different for everybody. And there's a different quality or a different experience. And that's, I think, reflected in the birth chart. When we look at your son, the sign it's in the place that it's in the house that it's in and the planets that it's in conversation with. And we don't all want to shine on the world stage. And that's the beautiful part of astrology is that articulates that. And I, you know, you and I could probably talk, have tell so many stories about people with their son in like challenging areas of the chart and the kind of work that they do and the kind of ways in which they live their life and how they shine really brilliantly in those specific realms or industries or, or ways of working or areas of the world. And so where the sun is, is that portal to you feeling a sense of vitality. I think this is where we want to, we want to have our sun really fully expressed so that we can feel energized. We can feel our own sovereignty. We can feel our own power. 
and we can feel like we are our own kind of generating force. That's brilliant. Vitality. That's a really good keyword because the sun is like the center of the solar system and like everything else revolves around it and everything depends on it, especially on earth. All life on earth like depends on the sun um, and the way that plant plants, you know, take sunlight and transform it into their own food and their own energy in order to live and grow and thrive. And in the same way, the sun plays that similar role as a central thing that everything depends on in the birth chart as a source of vitality um, and as a as a sort of um, motivating factor that other things revolve around so that it provides like a central principle that sometimes we use to motivate our life and our life direction in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it's a dominant force. So you can also see why like metaphorically it's become a dominant Thing that we've understood about ourselves. It's also the easiest thing to locate about somebody's astrology is that if you know their birth date, pretty much, unless they're born on the day, the sun transitions signs, you know, what sign they are. And so, you know, something kind of core about them in a way that's really helpful when we want to have like a mass conversation about the powerful, like symbolism that astrology holds and it's held in the human psyche for so long. Right. And, and about, so especially, I guess the starting point is the sun sign and how that becomes um, a motivating force for each person in terms of how they, um, how they operate in the world. And you focus a lot on the triplicity or the element of the sun sign and what motivating keywords that gives to each person, as well as the um, modality in terms of cardinal fixed and mutable is giving another set of keywords for that motivating force that's underlying the sun sign. Yeah. I think it's like another good way to locate our attention and to be like, okay, so I, I might not understand, like I have, I meet a lot of people and I've been like this too, with certain signs. Like it took me kind of like a while to like figure out how does that sign actually manifest? Like there's some signs that might just feel like really far away from you and that's fine. So you can kind of like let go of the popular knowledge about what that sign is and be like, okay, what modality is it? It's going to be either cardinal, the beginning of a season, have a lot of energy, get starting with a lot of things. It's going to be mutable, a sign that comes in between the seasons or in between, like at the end of one, um, it's sorry, cardinal fix. So the, so the season begins, the fixed sign fixes it. So people with something in a fixed sign, are going to have that quality of being really sturdy and steady and usually give off an air of confidence or immovability because that's the vibe of the of that of that sign or of that um, modality and then the mutables that come along and be like okay love we're done with that thing but we're not quite ready for the next thing and we're going to be in this transitional space so it's exceptionally flexible and mutable it's able to change and so if you know that quality about the ascendant sign, about the sun sign, then you're going to know something really specific about how this person is, if we're looking at the rising sign, motivated. What are they motivated to do? Are they motivated to initiate things? Are they motivated to stabilize things and to evoke a sense of confidence from other people that they can get the job done? Or are they going to come in and be like, okay, great. I'm going to do a bunch of different things. I'm going to be like multitasking, multifaceted, run two businesses, do all the stuff because that's the thing that I can do. I can disperse a lot of 
my energy in a lot of different directions. And that's actually good for me. That's like rising sign vibe. And then sun sign is like, that's how you shine. So you can have a mutable rising sign and, and again, be motivated to do a lot, to explore a lot, to give out a lot, and then have a fixed sun sign and do that all with a sense of confidence and a sense of sturdiness and a kind of robust ability to stay the course and maybe a lot of different things. And then if you look at the elements, you know, the element of the sign is either fire, water, air, or earth. And if you think about fire is that creative force that needs a lot of freedom and needs to be able to follow their impulse or follow their like desire, like they get a kind of insight and they've got to kind of go with it. Air signs need to be in communication. They need to be in the realm of thought. Earth signs need to be practical, need to make things manifest. They'll feel sturdy. And then water signs, of course, need to feel and be in the kind of realm of emotion in some way, shape or form. And then you mix those two things. And these are just like super astrology basics, but when you apply them to these different principles, they give a lot of clarity as to what will help that person feel like they're shining or what will help that person feel like, yes, I'm in line with what I'm motivated to do. Um, and you can do all those different things in different areas of life. And everybody has these, you know, different combinations. So it makes astrology, the oldest personality test available. Yeah, I would, I did a whole series on the Zodiac where we did a deep dive into each sign last year. And I was, um, it was great having that reminder and just being how shocked all of so many of the like dozens or even hundreds of keywords for each of the signs of the Zodiac really just come back to those core principles of, you know, what is the element or their fire and water and what is the modality cardinal fixed or mutable. And then also maybe like, what is the, the planet associated with that sign or that rules that sign. And then from those combinations, you just get hundreds of different keywords, but then also you can see the core motivations of individual people, as well as sometimes it's funny how different people's internal motivations sometimes when they're alignment in alignment with other people, like that's when you get like friendships or, or relationships sometime of just like two people when they share something in common sometimes tend to gravitate together um, versus sometimes how you can see when different people have like a preponderance of placements in different modalities or elements. Um, sometimes they run into to conflicts with each other just because they're not used to doing things the same way or they don't have the same internal motivation. So sometimes it comes off as like um, almost like alien when they're dealing with somebody that has different motivational priorities and that sometimes becomes a source of, of like tensions or conflicts between them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you might know that in popular astrology because this sign does this and this sign does this. But those, even those like memes, they come from like this, this deeper root that is really about the nature of the qualities of these two things. And then when you add in the planet that rules that sign, it kind of gives you a kind of fuller understanding of why that sign has that quality, where that's from. Cause it is all, you know, or a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it's originated in the planet that rules that sign or has its domicile. Right. Yeah. Um, and I have a 
diagram that can show like an old diagram that just shows the signs of the zodiac and the planets that rule them as well as what the different elements and modalities are um in the older traditions they also divide it by like they do gendered assignments of saying odd odd signs are masculine and even signs are feminine but I know there's been a discussion about revising some of those and that's one where, where you like to frame those differently in your in your book right yeah I yeah because it's the uh, our the language of it is so limiting and we are in a moment of reclaiming the you know, the, the diverse gender expressions of humans, you know, forever, the, this understanding of like human beings falling into two categories of gender and having a gender binary is really new and very connected to colonization and white supremacy, et cetera. So even like, if you think about when these systems were created, depending on what region we're talking about, they, they also had different and in a lot of cases, more expansive understanding of gender. So it's hard to like use old language in this moment because we're also deconstructing gender in a way that makes those terms problematic. So I think the important thing is to say like they are in different categories and you can use whatever words you like for those different categories. But, and also it's, it, it's hard to say sometimes the same words from different eras of, you know, human understanding and different philosophies and they become problematic in new contexts. So it, just right. in order to like get it across and like have an understanding of it, sometimes it's better to use different language. And you like to use um, more of a, a nocturnal and or, or, or lunar and solar type language, or what's your preferred distinction when you're talking about like the odd versus the even signs? Yeah, I think that helps just, we haven't really covered this, but because the sun has a team and the moon has a team, not only are different planets on that team, but the different signs are, we could say are seen to go under those two teams. So we could use that distinction if it's helpful so that the like fire and, and air signs fall under the solar team and then water and earth signs fall under the lunar team. And I don't think you even need to like explain why that is too much. Even if you think of just like the moon and its connection to tides and the moon as like the body and the body is earth and, you know, and the sun is literal about literally a ball of fire. And so, you know, it's connected to fire and, and air. Yeah. I like that. And it, when it connects it better, that connecting with solar versus lunar or diurnal daytime versus nighttime also with you know more relatable modern even like psychological no notions of like extroversion and extroverts versus like introverts and, and those being different personality types and and sort of a more psychological access point like that mm -hmm. um yeah so do, do you think that's an okay paradigm in terms of like introversion versus extroversion or are there other sort of relatable keywords there that are, are useful in terms of that distinction? I think introversion and extroversion, as long as we are thinking about the quality of the sign and not necessarily the entirety of the picture of the person. Sure. Because it's a lot more complicated, but we tend to, you know, make, do like one-to-one -one kind of ratios when we start thinking about this. So as long as you can hold that with a more complex thing, because there's a lot to the chart, there's a lot to you. There's a lot more than just those. Um, 
just that, that if you have like all, you know, so many things that are in water and earth, you might display, or you might feel like a lot goes on internally with you or that there's a need for more introverted time, but you might also appear to the world to be extroverted. Right. If you have like sag, sag rising or something. Or like, yeah, like Jupiter in the first house or, you know, something that is going to get you to appear to other people or have you motivated to appear to other people in a way that is bouncier, let's say. I like that because that really brings up a point that, um, you know, our charts are complicated and there's many sometimes contradictory indications, just like people themselves are complicated and there's different facets of different people depending on your your perspective on them and and depending on different parts of the life. And that's really the first thing that people should come to see and realize when you look at the sun, moon, and rising is just realizing that, you know, with your rising sign, your your appearance, how you appear to people may be one thing. Um, your sun sign, like how you shine or your intellect may be another thing and how your moon is placed in terms of your body and some of the physical things may be in a completely different sign. And part of the core truth of that is just showing that each of us are complicated, complex individuals that have a variety of different motivations and our character is made up of a number of different, sometimes competing or even contradictory things. And that's shown and like depicted. Yeah. And can make you yourself cringe. Mm. Right. So there can be one part of your chart. That's like a super nerd that just wants to go into like a library, a study cave and just like geek out. And right. then there can be another part of your chart that again, is like, especially one of these three or four things that we're mentioning that is like out in the world and big and loud and noisy and chaotic. And that can make the part of your chart. That's the geeky nerd that just wants to study like mortified, but you as the person that is all of these things, you have to figure out a way to, to give both of those aspects or the many aspects of you time and space and to like deal with the consequences, (laughs) but also to like, feel like both of those things or all of these things get to live themselves out in some aspect of my life. Yes. I love that. That's, that's great. Uh, It reminds me of like, you know, like Henry Cavill, who's been playing like Superman for most of the past decade. And Mm -hmm. he's like outwardly this kind of like hunky, like super buff guy that's playing these leading roles, but then privately, like he's kind of like a computer game nerd. And like, he has like videos on the YouTube channel, like building a, a gaming PC and stuff like that. So there's just, there's different parts of a person's personality. And that's one of our access points for understanding the difference between the sun, moon and rising is sometimes there's the things that the public sees on the surface versus there's the the private personality maybe that is more hidden. And that again, brings us back to that, that distinction between light and dark and the things that we can see um, that we know are there versus the things that we can't see or the things that are maybe hidden, but are there nonetheless and are playing a role sometimes or, or operating in the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, then if you want to talk about like what area of the chart your son is in, then there are some places in the chart, there are some houses in the chart that are what we call hidden or because the ascendant can't witness them 
or they can't witness the ascendant, which is the U of the chart. And so there's, you know, especially like three houses in the chart where that is thought to be so four really, but three are kind of focused on the 12th house, the eighth house and the sixth house, also the second house, but it's talked about kind of less, but if you have your son in one of those places, then you might be somebody who shines in areas that are kind of like tucked away. So in, you know, if you've got your son in the 12th house, perhaps you spend a lot of time in dark rooms or creative incubators or places like, you know, that you kind of retreat to, that you go into, or you spend time with people that are incarcerated, literally spaces that are tucked away or where we shove people or we want to forget about things. Um, and so that might be an area where you're like, oh, this is my area. This is my thing to do. And I think again, like the reason why I'm so enthralled with astrology and want to teach it and want it to go to people that are interested in it is because it, it gives you that witnessing and I've never seen it not be totally aligned with somebody's life. I also know like a lot of 12th house placements that are amazing, like fixers, like they go in and there's like a huge problem and you don't even know they've ever been there or that they're talking to like the CEOs or whatever. And they go in and they help everybody fix the problem. They go in and out without you even ever knowing that they've done that. And so there's a lot of ways in which these things can happen, but, um, knowing the area of your life that your son is in the house that it's in can do, I think so much in terms of like liberating you from feeling a certain way about what you want to do with your life or like how you want to be. And you can be somebody with like, say, you know, like a, <laughs> a Scorpio sun that it might be a little secretive and a little private and be like interested in the mysterious things of life, but have your son in the 10th house or a cancer son in the 10th, you know, they can have like these qualities of being maybe a little bit more private or a little bit more reserved, but your son is in a public area of the chart. And so there you are, you're in some way, shape or form going to be thrusted into the public or have to contend with the fact that that has got to be a part of your life and its journey. And you might also feel really, uh, conflicted about it. But here it is, you've got to like, I think for me, I am always like, you gotta, you gotta do this thing though. Like that is, it's in there and you know it. And so how can you do it in a way that you feel is sustainable for you? Right. Well, as like the, I think the sun and Scorpio in the 10th house person, you just, for me, at least you do it by having really long, intense conversations <laughs> that go way too long for like two, or, two or three hours about things, you know, about dark, not dark, about occult hidden yeah. knowledge type things. Yeah. Um, and you do it very publicly, like, you know, <laughs> four, four times a month on a podcast. And that's a really good example, because that's an example, example how sometimes there's contradictions between like a sign placement versus a house placement. But the person will always find some sort of way to reconcile that or to blend those sometimes opposing energies in a way that's unique and, and makes sense and, and becomes one of the things that we just see around us in the world every day. Yeah. And you're, you know, if you, so your Scorpio sun is a fixed modality. So you've done 7 million of these episodes and you just keep going. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, consistency and like doing, once you find your routine and like doing something over and over again, and, and that that's something that brings you joy or happiness or vitality to use like a sun keyword that people, mm. a fixed sign people, let's say find vitality in what is familiar and like doing the same thing that they enjoy over and over again versus somebody that has like a cardinal sign with their son in, in it or other placements in it, you know, might find vitality in doing something new and like not doing the same thing every time. Yeah. Yeah. Or there's gotta be an area of life where they feel like they are able to start things and, and, and keep the energy of, of, uh, initiation, uh, in some aspect of their life. Yeah. Um, I like that you use the word vitality again, though, but that's, you know, where the sun placement is like where we find vitality in certain things. And sometimes, um, like you were saying, the difference between the the dark houses versus the light houses, and sometimes finding vitality in things that are not super obvious or super visible to people, but sometimes, or or even finding vitality in helping people or being of service to heal people is like a major theme that comes up in some of those houses, like the sixth and the eighth and the 12th, and that that can be vitalizing for certain, for certain people. Yeah. And also like, so complex, say you're a Leo rising, and that means that you're motivated to like shine and get attention and be a little bit of a performer and like do something that, that, that pulls focus, but you're a Capricorn sun in the sixth house. And that means that part of where you shine is in the area of work. And often six house people find something, some meaning, and this isn't the only place. So don't, you know, take this for the only thing that this is, but often six house people are really amazing support folks. Like within an organization, they could be like the, you know, the COO or, you know, someone that's able to be like an intrapreneur, which means that within an existing structure, they're able to like do things. And, you know, I'm using that word because it's Capricorn. So it's cardinal. So like begin things, but it's within a structure that somebody else or a group of people have already done. So it's, so sometimes there can be a conflict with like the Leo rising of it all that needs to shine and get attention. And then the the Capricorn six house placement of it all, where it's like, you're also a workhorse and like, you're really good at getting into an ex existing structure and being able to support from that place. And so again, you have to find a place where your Leo rising can be happy, but you also have to do work that feels really satisfying long-term and also something that you feel like you can keep like bringing new energy into. Right. That makes sense. And, and that, that, can be a source of vitality for you um, if some of those things are fulfilled or if you're able to find a way to fulfill some of those things it can be like a vivifying force that can energize the rest of the chart and the rest of your placements in some way mm -hmm. yeah yeah it can bring uh, a sense of, of of goodness or maybe even what you feel is like a fortune into your life i think mm -hmm. okay so, so that's the sun and the sun sign, and especially the zodiac sign that it's placed in, and also the house placement showing the area of life where you might shine or where you might have that sense of vitality or being enlivened. Um, let's talk about the moon and some of those keywords that you were bringing up for the moon, where while we're associating the sun to a certain extent more with like the mind or the intellect and with the um, sense of 
energizing things. The moon, we're talking more about the body in different ways, right? Yeah, the the physical experience of life. The I also think of the moon as like the the dailiness of life, where the sun might be the big like, yes, this is my my this is what lights me up. This is what inspires me. This is like my soul's you know purpose. It's like okay, well, I got to live that out every day, and every day I got to walk the dog and get some food and get some sleep and like you know hopefully take a shower and like do the mundane things of life. The moon is of course the closest body to the earth. And so because it moves so fast, it's always in conversation with the other planets or the other luminary in the sky. And so there's this way in which the moon becomes thought of as our intermediary between all of this celestial, like, you know, knowledge and energies or archetypes, if you will, and us. And so our body is like that intermediary between our soul's purpose and like living it out. And so I had to contend with whatever this vehicle is and this vehicle and whatever happens to it will make me feel a lot of different ways and to have a lot of different moods and emotions and changes and the ways in which the moon waxes and wanes can also be seen as like a metaphorical reflection of that. And it can be a little, I think, harder to understand. Well, okay, well, how do I look at my moon? I think of like the moon is like, this is what you have to do in like a daily way. This is how you take care of yourself. This is how you can think about self-care, but this is also that big, huge, like purpose. It's too big. <laughs> like how the fuck do you do that? You can't just go and like, that's my purpose. I'm going to go do it. You got to unpack it in the nitty gritty kind of work of life. And I think that through the moon, we get to know that that's kind of how we do it in a rhythmic daily and sometimes like literal physical kind of way. And it's, if I want to take care of myself, I'm going to go to my moon and be like, what sign is it in? What modality, what, like, what can I do? Or when I'm looking at your chart, I'm going to be like, okay, well, what are the, what are the components of this moon? So how can we help to like bring the nervous system back down or help to feel this, help this person to feel a sense of security. And I think the moon can give us a lot of keys into that kind of area of life. Yeah, that's great. Um, that I liked what that point you made at the very beginning about that the moon is the body, the celestial body that's closest to us. So it's much more personal in some ways, um, but all, it also brings to mind ideas of like immediacy that mm. the the things that you have to do to keep your body going, like eating and sleeping, are those like immediate necessities that you must do. Where if some of those things are interrupted or if the things that the body needs in order to operate regularly are interrupted. Like if you don't have like good health, for example, if you're not feeling good or if you feel sick, that sometimes interrupts you from being able to do other things like intellectually where you might want to be doing, like pursuing intellectually like your son and your like life purpose or something like that. But if if there's something that's happening with the body that's throwing a wrench in that, it kind of dom can have a tendency to dominate or sidetrack everything else. So it just brings mm -hmm. to mind some of those um, things that we have to do to to have the basic upkeep of being, you know, physical beings that are like incarnated in a body and everything that comes along with that. Yeah, and then you want to look at the 
which again, Demetra George does so thoroughly and so well in a lot of different uh, books that she's written, but you want to look at the relationship between the sun and the moon, because obviously we're always in some kind of moon phase, like the moon is always doing something. And that's because of the light that it's reflecting from the sun, which is also another metaphorical understanding of what the moon is. The moon literally as a body isn't a generator of its own light, but it's the reflector of the light. So the body without the soul is a corpse, but the body with the light of the sun or the light of the soul is animated and can do a lot of really groovy things. And so the connection between the sun and the moon, again, is archetypally, I think like lodged back in the deepest part of our brain and knowing as something that we've always been watching and witnessing. And it's also deeply rich with meaning in our chart, the phase of the moon that you were born under. Yeah, that's a really good point about the phase of the moon and what its relationship with is with the sun and also just how the the moon phases change so frequently mm-hmm. where it's something you can see over the course of the month that the moon at a new moon starts out you know very dark and not very bright and then it just gets increasingly brighter and brighter and brighter until you hit the full moon and it's at its full maximum radiance and brilliance in reflecting the light of the sun and then it gets darker and darker and darker until it hits the next new moon and you just have that constant phase of of change and um and things being different from one day to another in the same way that sometimes for each of us like our our emotions change and shift and move upwards and downwards at different rates for each person in in different ways yeah and you know we do this in the app where we tell you what phase of the moon that you were born under and what that means. And so when you merge that with the sign that your moon is in the house that it's in the aspects that it's making, you get this really rich, deep understanding. I was born under a crescent moon phase. And I remember learning about that. And it just, you know, probably at the time too, I was like in an immense struggle. So it was really helpful, but there's, you know, the, some of the words that are about crescent moon is like, it's struggling to get away from the inertia of the past and to like reestablish it or to establish itself as a new thing. And that emergence has really resonated with me. And I was like, okay, so that this part of my struggle is actually meaningful. It's reflected in the, it was reflected in the sky when I was born and therefore it is on purpose. So then it helps me to accept, or it helped me to accept that part of me that always feels like it is trying to emerge or come out into something new. Um, and then when you start to mix it with, again, the, the rising sign and the, where the sun is, you start to get like this fuller, richer picture of the, the tempo, the quality of how this person's life comes into being. Because again, the, the, the rising sign is the marker of that life. So it's the marker of life but the sun and moon are also, we could say markers of life because if the sun and moon are in, you know, a challenging situation, that person's literal life force could also have experienced challenging situations or even near death experiences. You know, like you can really see when you look at people's charts that have come through like major physical traumas, especially or near death experiences that quite often these places of life can be compromised in some way. So again, not to like make anybody afraid if they have something that that they read about that seems compromising, but also it can be really validating to, to look and say like, 
when you give a reading to someone like, oh, wow, did you ever like experience something where you weren't sure if you were going to make it or something that really, you know, like compromised your ability. And again, like so nine times out of 10, it's like, yes. And then you talk about it, you start open it up and unpack it and how core and essential it's been to the, the mark of somebody's life. And somebody like Frida Kahlo is like a incredible, a wild example of that, both through her life and her work and her art. But when you look at her astrology chart, it's like, it's right there. Um, so again, want me to, these, do you want me to pull these, it up? Sure. If you want, you look at you just like pulling all these things up. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm quick. I'm, you know, I gotta quick. be on top of things. <laughs> so we can see Frida's, uh, ascendant is Leo, which demands that she does things that are, are going to be evocative, performative, get attention, possibly wear crowns. It's Leo. There's something, you know, regal there. She obviously wore many. It makes the sun, the ruler of her ascendant. The sun is in the 12th house, which is a very, again, like we started out saying a precarious part of the chart because it's about that precarity of life and death as we emerge into the world. So we know that there's something there. It doesn't, you know, it's just got Jupiter exalted. That's amazing. It's conjunct Neptune, which makes her incredible visually and creatively. And there's all these themes about cancer that run through her life, motherhood, childbirth, uh, you know, conception, all of that is very cancerian in nature. So those themes are always there. Um, she's definitely an emotionally evocative artist. And then when we see, when we look directly across from her son, we see that Mars, you know, the planet of severing the planet of, of, of a lot of aggression, challenging things and Uranus, a modern planet, but nonetheless, one that is all about accidents and disruptions are directly in opposition with her son, her life force. And not only is her son, you know, that divine spark, it's also the ruler of her ascendant. So it says something about the direction of her life, but also the possibility of life, the life force itself. And so this disruptive, you know, force of Mars and Uranus that are opposing her ability to live. And Mars is literally like the, you know, something that can cut through it is like the surgeon's instrument. It is the sword. And she's literally in her life in this disastrous accident and the sixth house where Uranus and Mars are is the place of accidents. She's in this disastrous accident where she's like impaled. And so it's like a shocking literal translation. Now, do other people with this placement have this destiny? No, but this is a, this is a person who becomes an icon of famous. And I can't remember who said it. Maybe you do Chris, but oftentimes when people become that are icons, they, they live out their astrology in such extreme and dramatic ways, almost to like illuminate that archetype for the rest of us. Yeah. And just the fact that she did um, so much of her life um, was centered around her struggles with health and how that sometimes impacted her, like her, like um, life force in different ways. But then at the same time within that, she dug within herself and, and found a way to express herself um, through her art, which sometimes still conveyed those themes is really beautiful. Yeah. And then if we want to look at like the 12th house is a place of confinement. And so because of the accident, she spends years and years and years confined to her bed. 
And then if we want to think, okay, well, how do we add the moon in? What does the moon mean? Well, if the moon is how we unpack that life purpose in a kind of daily way, what is the quality of the moon? And the moon is up in the 10th house of career. It is exalted in Taurus. So it's in a really, you know, really good position and, and definitely in one way it's in a really strong house. So we know that part of how she unpacks her life purpose is through this area of life is through career in a really consistent way that is, you know, like relentless in a sense, in terms of like production and it's an earth sign. So she's going to be productive. It is close to the mid heaven, a point of, you know, like activation and energy. So it, it feels exceptionally prominent. So you're like, okay, well, how do you express all this difficult stuff? Well, it's through the career it's in a Venusian sign. So it's connected to art making or beauty, or, you know, maybe even like agriculture or something like that. And then if you want to throw in like fixed stars, then it's, you know, there's, there's a algal up there close-ish to both the midheaven and the, and the Mars. And definitely there's that feeling that comes through her art as well. And then again, it's the moon, which is again about conception in the 10th house of career, which is a lot of what she expressed was a lot about family and lack of family and her experiences trying to create family and all of that. So one, yeah, one little uh, expression of a very complex life that still gets unpacked to this day. So the mark of her life has has marked the world and marked her industry. And the 10th house is also a place where you might think about the industry that you're in. And if you have a really strong placement there, then you could possibly leave a very um, deep mark on that whole kind of way of, of working. That's yeah, that's really beautiful. She's such a good example of somebody that just like lived her chart in such a literal manner. Um, and that even though part of what she lived and expressed was conveying the the difficulties and the hardships, um, that in and of itself sometimes leaves like this such a major impact on the world. Um, her twelfth and like sometimes tenth house placement and the interconnection between them sometimes reminds me of an example I use uh, sometimes for that, which is Galileo, who did some of his most important work like later in life while he was under house arrest. Mm -hmm. And so he had this sense of like confinement or being stuck somewhere. But then through that, he was able to dig deep into himself and like find in some ways his, his life purpose in, in a really striking way. What does he have in the 12th house? Um, he has some sort of like interchange just like she does between oh, right. the the 12th and the 10th. Um, and we're saying have... that because the moon is the ruler of the 12th. So the 12th house gets pulled into the 10th house. Yeah. And that it's, well, because it's a similar chart signature where he was also Leo rising and he had, um, oh, in the eighth. Yeah. These, uh -huh. these two, two positions, you know, there's a bunch of planets, yeah. well, stellium in the, in the eighth house, but then also Saturn and Jupiter in the 12th. And the ruler of the 12th is the moon, which is up there exalted in Taurus near the mid heaven in the 10th. And that's just an interesting parallel between those, those two figures in that, in that way. Yeah. And so when you start to get into like how these things are set up, you can start to see why trying to pin everybody's like life purpose and work in life just on their sun sign doesn't, it just, it, of course it doesn't cut it. But I think like Frida Kahlo is a, and, and Galileo, these examples of like, well, that isn't like confirmation bias. <laughs> like these are the, the significations of those planets in these positions. 
And this is what happened to her. Mm-hmm. And this is what she did with it. So, you know, that's not being like, well, you're such a chatty Kathy. You know, it's like, right. you know, th- these are the actual activities of the life and they're lived out through this person's life. And you can look at them. And I think, you know, in retrospect is always fascinating because you get to see what happened in the entirety of the capsule and then also how the chart still lives itself out. Yeah, for sure. And, and that people can do really incredible things with difficult placements sometimes and, and transform those into something really beautiful. Yeah. And I think we all have to transmute something in our life and that there's not much of life that is purely easy, right? So there's a lot of difficulty and a lot of challenge in life in all the different ways. And so if we come with that kind of understanding to look at our chart, then we might not be so terrified of some of the things we might see or that we do see and, and be curious about what those difficulties, that sand and the oyster is going to help us to like eventually create and leave behind as an offering. And um, you mentioned something just now that makes, reminds me that you had mentioned earlier on that the moon can sometimes relate to like ancestry or some of our early experiences earlier in life in terms of growing up or things that maybe we come into this life with from earlier in terms of our family history and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to also think about like, is, and it's not, it won't always be for everybody, but like, is where my moon is in my chart connected to something that is like a literal manifestation in my life? Like I know somebody who's part of a family of artists and the moon is in Libra in their second house. And so the quality of the moon being the connection of family and the sign that it's in is Libra, which is a sign of art and artists is in their second house of how they're supported. And so there's this sense of like, oh, there's a family connection. Are you also an artist? Are you part of the family business? Is there something connected to what people that came before you did that is also part of what you do? Or like, that could also be the signature of like a family of Fisher people, (laughs) like people that do like nautical things or, you know, because the moon could be related to water. So you want to think about, um, what is there a family thing that has been passed down to you? And that could obviously be something that's problematic or challenging that you then take and transmute into something positive uh, in the area of your life where the, the moon manifests itself. And then we want to go back to Frida's chart again. She talks a ton or she, she painted a ton about ancestry in her work. And so one of the offerings she gave to the world was these images of her ancestors and what that meant to her and also, you know, land and people and the colonization of Mexico and, you know, a lot of different kind of layers of that, but the moon in terms of how it connected to her family definitely showed up in her 10th house of career and what she was able to put out into the world. Yeah. as as something that she deliberately wanted to like center and, and put the focus on. Yeah. Um, that also, it's, it also reminds me of how it's like, sometimes I read these stories about like, you have two siblings that are like separated at birth or something like that and end up in different families. And then sometimes they like cross paths as, as adults and they find out that they have sometimes, um, 
similar personality characteristics that are like strikingly similar that they don't that must have then been some sort of inherited like family characteristic that they don't mm -hmm. consciously you know do or in some sense but it just is part of their personality through some sort of background that goes back before them um and i think of the moon sometimes when i when i see stories like that yeah yeah it'd be interesting to do like astrological comparisons right to what it is that's the thing that is, might be the genetic thing or the the way in which that shows up right yeah, but just thinking of those things that are, are passed on maybe through through families, um, which can sometimes be good things, can sometimes be challenging things. But just thinking about that notion of what did you what what was passed on from from family connections in, in different ways, or what was an early environment that you grew up in, and how did that shape some personality things for you? In the yeah. same way that the it's like the sun sort of emits light spontaneously, but the moon is receiving light and then reflecting it back in the same way for us in terms of our moon. Sometimes that can be part of the distinction of the access point. Yeah. So you can think of when you look at your chart and look at your sun, if you go on the app, you can read about it, like all the things, where it is, what it's placed. And then you think, okay, well, this is like the big, the big, yeah, the, the big, like woohoo thing, sparkly, shiny thing that I, that I'm here to do. And then the moon is the way in which I'm able to do it. So I got to make sure that I take care of the moon and all of its signification so that I can actually kind of like unpack my life's purpose. And it can also be a place where we can go to in a daily way to feel like we're getting those little tune-ups that we need in order to show up for kind of the bigger things in our life. And also, again, the ways in which we might be able to regulate our systems is through the moon sign, the, the, the placement of it, where it is and, and what to do. So if like you have a moon in the ninth house, you might want to jump on a plane in order to feel better. <laughs> like the ninth house is the place of travel. Of course you, it's also the place of education. So you might want to pick up a book or like listen to a podcast from your favorite teacher when you feel a little, you know, out of control or like you, you need some kind of self-care. You might need a kind of adventure if your moon is in, you know, the third house, you might need to like go for a little walk around your neighborhood or like stop by a friend's house or do something that's more local. Cause the third house is a lot about our local kind of daily environment, or, you know, you can kind of see in Frida's chart that she would go to career, that she would go to work. That was like a way to help relieve some of the suffering or some of the other stuff that was happening, especially through her son. Right. So what is our self-care? How do we take care of ourselves? And what is that sometimes like default thing that we fall back on almost instinctually um, that, that then sometimes either makes us feel good or that we sometimes default to when right. emotional stuff comes up? Right. Like a moon in Virgo might get super picky, but maybe cleaning the silverware door will make you feel better. <laughs> you can be like nitpicky, but not at like another person or yourself. Or a moon in Libra, when they're like off center, might get super people pleasy or very indecisive. And that's a, you know, a, a challenging way it could manifest, but a way for them to rebalance might be to like go see some art or do some art or take in something that feels beautiful or pleasurable or rebalancing in some way. Right. So, and then that can also be characterized to some extent, some of those emotional responses by aspects to the moon and what the configuration of the moon is to different planets in the chart as being like core sort of emotional signatures for each of us. 
Yeah. 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 So if your moon is like connected to Saturn, you know, maybe you need to do something disciplined, but not too self flagellating. Right. So it's like being understanding of the nature of the planet and like the, the helpful manifestations of it. And when it kind of goes too far into another direction, but Mm -hmm. that, you know, if Saturn's in the picture, you're going to need to, to say yes to a commitment, be disciplined in some way, do something that over a long period of time is going to make you feel good. But it's about like consistency and, and that, you know, staying the course kind of feeling. And so if that's connected to your moon, maybe that can be a portal for feeling like, okay, I feel like I'm back in my integrity, or I feel like, you know, I've, I've done something today. So I've earned my, my, my right to like, feel a little better about myself, but yeah, as well as what some of our emotional triggers or things that might trip us up are like if you have more of a, sin- a connection between like Saturn and the moon, like a tendency because Saturn is like cold and slow towards melancholy. yeah, more melancholy or, or feeling depressed or something like that. Or if we have more of a connection with Mars, maybe we have more of a, a, a feeling of anger sometimes that comes out and learning how to moderate, let's say like emotional extremes in, in either instance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even like if Mars and the moon are connected, then we want to think about, is there heat trapped in the body, which might manifest as anger, but it can also manifest as a rash or as something that like, maybe shouldn't have so much hot sauce today. Like if you feel like inflamed, maybe do things like have some cucumbers, take an ice bath. I don't know, not prescribing anything, but like, there might be things that you can do to offset uh, that those, those significations. So like Chris was saying, like Saturn is like colder, so it can be like more constricting and like, you know, when you feel cold, you might feel like tensed up and Mars is the heat. So when you feel like overheated, you're like, you know, annoyed or flustered or like, you know, kind of out of it because there's too much heat. So when you can, when you look at the moon, you might also want to think about the, those qualities of the planets. And of course we're getting kind of in the weeds, but it's fascinating how literal and kind of practical those things can be. Yeah. My, my wife has a very, very, very powerful Mars and she used to like just douse things in hot sauce. Like just every, we just had like 17 hot sauces at all times. And then of course she, she had some side effects from it. And someone like a Ayurvedic practitioner was like, let's just not do the hot sauce. And she stopped doing hot sauce and all of her side effects went away. (laughs) Yeah. I, well, that's such a that's such an important point because there's ways that each of us can channel or mitigate almost every pl- placement in our chart. And sometimes during the course of, of learning astrology and during the course of our lives, we learn how to like sometimes lean into our placements uh, and other times to find a way to almost like counteract or balance them since sometimes balancing things out is the way to maintain like health in some ways, whether that means physically or mentally or emotionally or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you can have all these different types of combos, you know, you can have sun and Mars and moon and Venus and those two, you know, situations are going to manifest themselves really differently, but you've got to probably contend with both at some point. Right. For sure. So one last point I wanted to make sure we got to is just um, the role sometimes of sect of whether the difference between day versus night charts and how sometimes that can alter the sun, moon, 
combination and put more emphasis on one or the other in yeah. a way that that is easy to overlook, but it, I think is really crucial. Um, yeah. Is that something that's something you use as well? Yeah. So I start with the ascendant. I note the quality of the sign of the ascendant and how that's part of the motivation for that person's life. I notice if there's any planets in that first house that are going to color or, you know, buy for power or attention or however you want to think about it. And then I've, but, but actually before I've done that, I've noted if the sun is above the horizon or below, and if it's above the horizon, it gives me, gives us a day chart. If it's below, it gives us a night chart. And from there you get to like categorize everything, which is just such a helpful delineation. I have a very strong Saturn. So I love categories. I love boundaries. I love like, this is didactically how you would, you know, like how you divvy everything up. And so the, what I would do is after going through the rising sign, any planets in the first house, then I would go to the ruler of the ascendant, talk about that. But immediately I'm like, is that planet on the day team or the night team? And that is a whole kind of story and quality in and of itself. And then I would go to either the moon or the sun, because if it's a night chart, I'm going to go to the moon first. Not that the sun isn't important, but I want to talk about that moon because it's what we would call the light leader. So the luminary in charge more so than the other one. If it's a day chart, I would go to the sun and then go to the other luminary. And through that, you'll probably talk about every other planet in the chart. Right. That's not the only thing, obviously, but that'll take you an hour for sure. <laughs> Most yeah. of the time. Right. Take... <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that's crucial just because, so if, if a person was born during the day when the sun was in the top half of the chart, then it's a day chart and the sun is going to be the luminary that's providing light during that part of the day. And so it's going to tend to be more dominant. Whereas if a person was born at night, when the sun is in the bottom half of the chart, um, then in, in some instances, like the moon will actually be more prominent because especially if it's, in, in, if it's above the horizon, that's actually the luminary that's providing light at that point. And sometimes you'll see the moon in night charts playing a more dominant role in terms of describing the person's personality and some of their motivations and their, their intellect and different things like that. Yeah. And also the activity of the person's life, like the kinds of events that are likely to happen. And, you know, that I know somebody with a night chart and they had, they're also born at a full moon. So like if you're a night chart and you're a full moon or born in the full moon phase, then that's going to be like this kind of extra obvious example. And the moon is above the horizon. So it was literally like the brightest, boldest thing in the sky. So you also, I also say this a lot when we, I open up a reading. So like the moment you were born, this is what the sky looked like. And if it's a day chart, it probably, you can't see anything but the sun anyways, but if it's a night chart, you can get some really interesting, or if it's around dawn or dusk, you're like, oh, wow. Mercury was like this beautiful morning star, or evening star. And those are all also really important qualities to note is the visual appearance of things, or even that, you know, that evening or that morning. But so I know somebody with that, the full moon night chart, it's up in the sky, obviously. Um, and so there's so much that constellates around the placement of the moon and their life's work and the problems they encounter, the gifts that they have, and the, just the, the prominence of the sign placement. It's by a fixed star. 
the house placement. It just like, that's what people feel from this person. That's the kind of work that they do. That's what seems to be like such a major motif. And it's not that their son isn't important because they're such a, you know, whatever their sun sign is and, and their work also is so connected to that, but you cannot, you know, forgo the power of that moon and what it's doing and, and all of the issues that come up around it, all the events that come up around it. Yeah, for sure. There's something that's almost more visible about like the moon placement and night charts sometimes um, where that's almost like the more obvious personality characteristics in some ways for some people when the moon is is prominent in that way in a person's chart. And it's just an, it's an important thing to kind of take into account when you're looking at the sun, moon, and rising, just which luminary is actually providing light and shining at that point when the person was born. Yeah, yeah. 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 And if it's, yeah, if it's a night chart and it's a new moon or if it's a balsamic moon, you can't see the moon. That's also a ton of information that you can, you know, spend almost the whole session talking about. Yeah, for sure. So, okay. Um, so Did I, think I say that's... that in the app, you can also, it'll tell you if you're born at in the, in the day or in the night, if you have a day chart or a night chart. No, that's really good. That's really important. Yeah. If you're like, I have no idea. What are they talking about? You can go to the app, the Chani app, and it'll show you it'll it's right in your chart section. And it'll be like, Oh, you were born in the day. And so there's people that if you notice your son is in the first house or the seventh house, you might be confused about if you're a day chart or a night chart, because that's where the horizon is. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we do that math, so to speak for you. Good. Good. I'm really glad to hear that because, yeah, a lot of people get tripped up on that, um, especially when using whole sign houses and not sure if the sun's like in the seventh, but it's not above the horizon or, or what have you. Yeah. Um, so that's excellent. Um, okay. And then so the final thing just to bring everything around and sort of wrap everything up and just to reiterate some of your primary keywords. So the sun being um, your life's purpose, where and how you shine the moon being your physical and emotional needs and how we live out our purpose in the physical realm, which can mean a number of different things. And then finally, the ascendant and its ruler being your motivation for living and the direction your life is steered in. Um, and just to come back to that again, one last time, you really put a lot of emphasis on the planets in the first house because they're like at the steering wheel of the ship. So they're playing a more dominant role um, being right there sort of steering the ship. Uh, or having a hand in it, and then you pay attention to the ruler of the ascendant, the planet that rules the rising sign, and its sign and house placement as being the steersman that is directing the life in a specific direction. Yeah, like we got to go there. That that's that's a non-negotiable. Like this is where the the direction is going, and it can be supportive to what the sun and moon are doing, or it can be totally different. And again, right. that will give you so much information. Like, I think when we first start looking at astrology, we want it to make sense in the, in the ways in which we're thinking about it. And when it doesn't go into a little like code that we've set up, we're like, but that doesn't make sense. How could the Sears person of the ship be in the 12th house, but everything else is in the first house, the sun and moon are in the first house. And you're like, yeah, exactly. Cause our lives are so paradoxical and so complex that we've got to figure out how does this actually manifest? How, how can we comply with both of these placements and find the the most generative expansive you know interesting ways in which to live these two these multiple things out 
Right. And sometimes we're pulled in different directions based on our placements, but ultimately some, some during the course of our life, we sometimes find a way to manifest all of them and to create a unique combination that works for and suits us as an individual. And that was something I loved about the introduction to your book when I was rereading it the other day, as you talk a little bit about your own life story with astrology and how you were pulled in different directions based on your different interests and different things that you thought for yourself were possible or or that you wanted to do versus what you didn't want to do, but you sort of found yourself pulled in this specific direction um, repeatedly until eventually you just kind of um, realized that that's what you wanted to do with your life. Submitted. Right. Yeah. I didn't want to say submitted, but I, I wasn't sure. No, it was how... like a submission. Okay. <laughs> I had dreams. Like they would, you know, the planets would come to me and like yell at me. Right. And uh, after that, this is very personal, but like after the UAC conference in 2012, that was like my first big astrology conference that I went okay. to and like met people my own age. And like, I was like, oh my God, this is a whole world I didn't know about. It was like the voices that I would like wake up to got so loud and so domineering and honestly kind of frightening that I was like, okay, let me, let me give this a try. Um, but I will say like the ruler of my ninth house of astrology is in my 10th house of career. So that's not, that doesn't mean that that is so for everybody, but you, you know, you can look at that and be like, okay, that's a thing. And then the ruler of my ascendant is in my third house, which is also a place that you could say is connected to divination and to obviously like daily rituals. And what do I do? I have an app. I, all my stuff has been about like how to understand the moon. It's the temple of the moon. That's what the house is called. How to, you know, we work with astrology in a daily way. How, like I'm, you know, in people's lives on their phone. It's I'm in communication with folks in a, in a lot of ways. So yeah. Communication. That is, like yeah. it's like literally the first keyword of the third house that every astrologer <laughs> goes to first and yeah. you have a dominant placement in the third house. And that's literally become your life's work is like yeah. communicating and you're communicating yeah. something very specific, which is like astrological insights, but first as a writer and, and yeah. writing your horoscopes. And now as somebody that actually like speaks and, and talks and presents that yeah. like verbally, um, you've manifested that placement, you know, at this point in your life, pretty in a pretty straightforward way. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. But um, it was like working with Demetra when she really clarified how important the ruler of my ascendant was in the placement of it. Cause I always wanted to be a writer, but I was like, I can't be a writer. And you know, that clarification, even though I had studied astrology for so long, I just didn't have that like you have to do this thing. This is where the, the life is directed here. And if you right. don't do this thing, it's not going to feel fortunate. It's not going to feel successful. And, you know, there's a list of things that are connected with that house. So I didn't have to do the writing, but it's such a dominant thing in a lot of different ways in my chart. So when I finally said yes to allowing myself to pursue it, that's when my life started to work for the first time ever hmm. that I felt. That's brilliant. And then everything fell into place when you found that thing that sort of matched your chart, partially because what your chart was saying were the things that would be the most authentic to you. And that's um, that's actually the subtitle of your book is Astrology for Radical Self-Acceptance. And, and that, yeah. that for you, that's part of like the key to astrology is, is self-acceptance, um, depending on what that means for each person. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like some people have a really easy time being like, yes, these are my gifts and this is what I do. And that's great for them. They might not need astrology, but for a lot of people, it's like, it can be harder to be like, this is, these are the things that I want to do. I don't know if I can believe in it, or this is like the gift. I don't know what to do with it. And it's, I feel like as soon as I accepted, like, okay, this is the thing. Then I just let myself get on with the work of it. And it didn't matter how I felt about it. It was like, this is the formula. And I feel that has always been internally what I wanted. And then it's externally printed out on the screen or on a piece of paper. And so they match. So why not just like take that as a sign, take that as some kind of truth and just put the work in and, and get to it. And as soon as I was able to kind of like make that decision and just be like, okay, great. And I think that anything you do that is connected with those house topics will get you there. You know, it might not be the first one you try, but it'll connect into something else there. And so I just feel like astrology, your chart is the most practical tool to work with, especially if you feel like, what is my purpose? I don't know what to do. I feel lost. Like, you know, and when you're in your twenties and maybe you're like me, I was in my thirties, I still felt so lost. And so I just, this was just like such a phenomenal tool. And it's been such a phenomenal tool for everybody I've worked with. So I just think it's one of the most practical things that we can do is understand these kind of core concepts about our chart so that we can just get on with the business of living out our purpose and hopefully be of service to a world that is in desperate need of service. And so I think the quicker we can kind of show up to it, the more like, you know, bounty and, and fortune will, will experience and therefore maybe even maybe happiness, maybe some joy, maybe some feeling of, of, of being in, in alignment with, with our talents and, and the gifts that we've been bestowed. Yeah. Well, I, I, cause I try to think of the opposite of what is the opposite then it's like self-denial or, or rejection of oneself. I would feel like that would be most in most cases at least lead to less happiness rather than more versus recognition and like finding yourself and then being who you are and who you were meant to be in some ways and finding the healthiest version of that um that is you know a great sort of path for many people to finding happiness in some ways yeah 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 and of, and really? i my my main thing is like and and being of use in the world Right. Like not just service to something greater than yourself in the world. Right. Like finding some way to like actually improve the world or, or do something here that improves the lives of other people. Yeah. That's my bias though. Sure. Well, that's a great, I mean, that's, you know, in terms of like things to do with one's life, like that seems like a good, um, goal to set in order to, you know, cause we're all just trying to figure out what we're doing here and like what our purpose is. And that seems like a great like purpose to have set in terms of, um, you know, finding yourself. Yeah. My purpose, I think all of our purpose here is to be of service and to help each other. And we each have very individual, unique ways of doing that. And when we accept those and move into them, that's when it can be like fun and interesting and wild and formative and deep and profound. And and a really great journey because that's all we've really got. Yeah, I love that. 
All right. Well, I can't think of a better note to end on and wrap things up on than that. Um, so I did want to mention you've literally, because I'm an Android person. So unfortunately, even though I knew about the app and I would have to like borrow a friend's phone to check it out every once in a while, um, you launched your app, the Chani app way back in 2020. Um, but now after lots of development, because I know developing for Android is very difficult, you've launched the app just recently here in the in the middle of August, and now Android users can finally like use this amazing app that you built over over a number of years. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a, uh, and, and it's it's an app that's built in a traditional astrological type of way. So it's with the principle. So when you, if you're, you know, I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast with Chris's, then you know what that means. But if your chart looks a little different when you pull it up and because your planets are in different houses than you're used to, it's because we use whole sign houses and the recommended podcast that I tell everybody to go listen to is why whole sign houses are the best. <laughs> I mean, I, the original you title want me to recommend was, something else. Then. Yeah. The original title was literally the best form of house division ever, but that was kind of tongue in cheek. And I, one of the things I appreciate is that you say clearly in the book and in the app, I think that like, you know, this is our sort of approach and this is the approach that I, that works the best for me, but that houses like people, you know, everybody has to find what works best for them and their chart and what matches their life the best. Yeah. And if you, if you do that, you know, it'll kind of work, you know, either way. Yeah. And there's a lot of different astrologies and there's a lot of different ways to see the sky and there's wisdom in all of it. And there's not one great way, but yeah, but I do podcast that I tell people to listen to. Okay. But I do, I do appreciate that this is the one app because most apps don't default to whole sign houses, whereas this does. So this is definitely the app that for me, at least matches my approach as closely as if I was to make an app, like it would look similar to this, just in terms of the basic technical things, since you and I have that similar background of we're like this weird generation of astrologers who came up studying modern astrology and then studied traditional and then blended them. And I think that's going to be a unique thing in the future, because now there's a lot of people that are like starting traditional and then learning modern or learning some mix right from the start. But it just gives us a sort of unique perspective generationally that you know, you and I share with people like, um, you know, Demetrio is both of our teachers, but also people like Austin or, or Kelly or, or what have you. And I love that the app reflects that approach and kind of sets the standard for what um, astrologers like myself would recommend as an app, because that is the technical approach that we sort of take. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So it's, it's been app. an amazing time to be an astrologer, obviously, to be able to bear, to, to be able to reap the benefits of all the people, yourself included, that like pour over ancient texts and like are able to like boil them down to something that is like cohesive and coherent and something that you can understand in like real, you know, modern terms. It's, it's just a panacea of like, of, of information and of, reconnection to something that was lost for so long yeah well and seeing the way that you specifically like articulate some of those things in that blend of like ancient wisdom with modern insights I think is really important is really striking because um, you're finding like the right way to articulate some of those ancient insights in a way that's modern and is approachable and also sort of takes into account the the great sort of like diversity in our field and what 
you know, contemporary language is like and different things like that. So it's such an interesting and important blend that I feel like it's setting the standard for what, you know, the next generations, how they're going to talk about astrology. And I think that's one of the points that's the most, most interesting and the most cool about it. Mm. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. All right. Well, um, where can people find more about you or about the app and your other work, like your book? Yeah, just chani.com has everything or chani in the app store, the Google play store will give you the app or Channing Nicholas on, on any of the social, um, media channels and chani Channy on for the company on any of the social channels as well. Cool. And, and what do you have coming up in the future? Are you going to do any more books or anything like that? Or do you have any major things on the horizon? You notice that when you publish a book, everyone's like, so what's the next book? Right. Um, yeah. I just, yeah, uh, spent years yeah. of my life working on this one. It's cool. 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 Yeah. Um, I mean, we've got a lot of stuff planned for, you know, now that we have Android out the door and in the world, now we can go back and do stuff to the app that we wanted to do for a long time, but we couldn't. Cause what you have to do when you build another version of the app is you have to freeze the first version of the app. You actually can't make updates to it because you have to replicate it in the next one. And then you kind of join them and then you can update. So there's a lot of really exciting stuff we've got planned for the app and yeah, some like podcast idea stuff. And I'm always like, I don't know if you feel this, but I'm always like, I got to write, I got to write, I got to write, I got to write the next book or whatever. But I'm kind of like in, I'm in that process of not quite knowing what it is or what is the next thing. So, and I'm also just learning how to be a parent and a human and a business owner and all those things. So it's been right. a, a wild ride, but really full of a lot of joy and a lot of sweetness. Yeah. You found, you found your life purpose and you're, you're doing it. That's been such a, so amazing to see your, your rise as like an astrologer and all the things that you've done over the past decade has been really mm. cool and I think everybody in our generation has had that experience of just like watching the other astrologers in our generation and, you know, have success and find themselves yeah. and find their place in the world. And, and especially with you, I can think of no better example that everybody just like universally has that feeling of like, oh, that's so great. Um, that makes sense also, because it's not like nobody's like surprised. Everyone's like, yeah, that makes sense. Like Chani found her place in and is flourishing and that's what we all kind of expected but to actually see it happen has been really heartening I think over the past decade oh, so sweet Chris thank you I'm also gonna pu -pu -pu be <laughs> extra evil eye Jewish about it but thank you <laughs> yeah um all right well thanks a lot for joining me this for this episode today this was really great and I appreciate it thank you thank you for having me can't wait to come back for sure all right. Thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. A special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Mimi Stargazer, and Jean-Marie Kaplan. If you appreciate the work I'm doing here on the podcast and you'd like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through our page on patreon.com. In exchange, you can get access to bonus content that's only available to patrons of the podcast, such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the monthly forecast episodes, 
our monthly Auspicious Elections podcast, or another exclusive podcast series called the Casual Astrology Podcast, or you can even get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, visit patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. If you're looking to get an astrological consultation, we have a list of recommended astrologers at theastrologypodcast.com slash consultations. The astrologers on the list are friends of the podcast that have been featured in different episodes over the years, and they have different specialties such as natal astrology, electional astrology, synastry, rectification, or horary astrology. You can get a 10% discount when you book a consultation with one of the astrologers on our list by using the promo code ASTROLOGYPODCAST. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we recommend a software program called Astro Gold for Mac OS, which is from the creators of Solar Fire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount. If you'd like to learn more about my approach to astrology, then I'd recommend checking out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune where I go over the history, philosophy, and techniques of ancient astrology, taking people from beginner up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. You can get a print copy of the book through Amazon or other online retailers, or there's an ebook version available through Google Books. If you're really looking to expand your studies of astrology, then I would recommend my Hellenistic Astrology course, which is an online course on ancient astrology where I take people through basic concepts up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. There's over 100 hours of video lectures as well as guided readings of ancient texts, and by the time you finish the course you will have a strong foundation in how to read birth charts as well as make predictions. You can find out more information at courses.theastrologyschool.com. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is a quarterly astrology magazine which you can read in print or online at mountainastrologer.com.